Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Michael Leader, film critic and host of the Ghibliotech podcast and Truth and Movies for Little White Lies. More recently, commissioning editor for BBC Inside Cinema and Inside Games. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Sam. Pleasure to be here. Lovely to talk to you today. How did you get started as a film journalist? We read out a few credits there, but film journalism is is where you began. Yes, and actually it's become less of a thing as I've gone on. And I don't really write as much anymore as I used to. I suppose coming out of university, uh, writing, I'm still very much an old media sort of person. I thought I'd be a journalist. I thought I'd write books. And then I know we're a similar age. We went to university and then all of that industry just collapsed and it all went online and we pivoted to video and social media and eventually everything else that came along. So I was very lucky that I was able to uh, join the Film4 online team at a point where there was still an editorial website. So I was the deputy editor and then editor there where we had a review section, features, could use a lot of that writing interest that I had. But at a time where we were pivoting more towards being social media, a brand online, brand management, all the while still being a freelancer for places like Sight and Sound and Little White Lies. And then podcasts came along and we were able to talk on microphone about what we love. Little White Lies is a great example of a publisher actually, you know, adapting and growing. And uh, and now it feels like the podcast is is its own thing. You know, it's obviously linked to the magazine, but it's got its own identity. And you also co-present the Ghibliotech podcast. Now, this yeah. is different to Truth and Movies in that it's not linked to a existing publication. This is a brand new thing that you started uh, with Jake Cunningham. Yes. And our sort of um, foundation myth and this is true. It's not like those Silicon Valley tech companies who all said they started in a garage, but they didn't really. Jake and I both work at Little Dot Studios and we sat across the desk from each other and we'd just talk about films all day long in between doing our jobs, of course. There was a Studio Ghibli retrospective coming up on Film 4 and Jake just said, you know, I don't think I've ever seen one of those films. What are they like? And I'm a bit of a super fan. I've seen all of them. I've loved re-watching them since I was a teenager. I've been writing about them a lot in my freelance life and loved the fact that Film 4 was the home on telly for them. So always made sure I could write about them as much as possible there. And I just jumped across the desk, grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and said, what are you saying? <laughs> and one of our colleagues or a couple of our colleagues, I can't remember who it was, sort of said, you know what, this should be a podcast that you should take him by the hand into the bright and colourful world of Studio Ghibli. And it could be tied with something like a Film 4 retrospective where they were showing 20-odd films over the summer two years ago. And um, the podcast was born. And the, the conceit being, each episode would be a film by Studio Ghibli that I've seen and loved and Jake is watching for the first time. I, I love listening to the show. It's, it's really eye-opening. I started listening to it as, you know, I thought I was a fan of Studio Ghibli, but I've learned so much from listening to the Ghibliotech, and it's been such a fun journey to, to go on with you all. No, oh, thank you. And it's been such a learning process for me as well, as I said. You can be a fan, you can be passionate, and you may, you may be an expert or a critic that always gets those commissions to write about the new film by X. But we very rarely, unless we're in the academic world, have the opportunity to really focus for a great deal of time on one subject. And 
I'm glad we were able to find a way to do that. And like you, there are loads of fans of Studio Ghibli out there. And because this is a podcast, it's available across the globe. Mm -hmm. What's the response been like? I imagine it's been quite far reaching. It's been phenomenal. We are apparently in the, always uh, in the top 10 arts and entertainment podcasts on Spotify in Japan, which is fascinating. I'd love to know who's listening to this podcast in Japan. I don't know why they'd be coming to us for uh, <laughs> for an insight into their own their own export. But it has been fascinating because we have various types of audience members. We purposely pitch the podcast as being accessible. Maybe some people have seen one or two of the films and want to go deeper. And we provide it almost like a viewing club, watch the film, listen to the podcast and engage with us afterwards. We'll talk further. Early on, we had a lot of people who were listening who were saying, oh, my five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old kid watched Money of a Totoro and we're going to watch them all together and we can learn more. We also have hardened nerds who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with us and beat us uh, a Ghibli fandom. We've spoken as well with academics and programmers and people who've worked for Studio Ghibli. We went to Japan and interviewed people out there. So going from being this two-person deal where we talk about films and share our interest to being almost like an oral history of Studio Ghibli that goes almost to the depth of a an encyclopedia maybe is has been a, a great wild ride. We gave you some homework, Michael. We asked you to choose just one under 90 minute film to discuss. How did you approach this piece of work? So you say this as if I, I've only been preparing for this record today. I've been preparing for this since you started the podcast is it two years ago. I, I love the concept for this podcast. I've been a big fan since the beginning. So I've had my long list of 30 odd films since the beginning that has been slowly whittled away. I'm I'm a recent father. Can it be? Can I still call myself a recent father? The my, my toddler is is almost two, and I'd always loved the idea of a film. I'd say shorter than ninety five minutes is the perfect runtime. That becomes particularly important when you have such limited time. Say maybe you have the time between putting a child to bed and their first wake up. So that's where my head has been at. So I've been whittling them down as your podcast has been going on. And when we finally started talking about this, I wanted it to be maybe something that got me away from what I usually talk about. It would be almost easy to talk about a Japanese film or an animation. or So I, I wanted to talk about maybe a film or an area of film or an area of culture that I don't often get to talk about. So that's what fed into this film. And Michael, what film did you choose for us today? Anvil! Exclamation mark. The story of Anvil. Anvil, the story of Anvil, is a timeless and at times feel-good tale of survival and the unadulterated passion it takes to follow your dream. Directed by Sasha Gervaisi, we follow heavy metal band Anvil as they attempt one last shot at the big time for their 13th album, this is 13, and a calamitous European tour. So this is a documentary directed by Sasha Gervaisi from 2008. 80 minutes long. Yes. Beautiful runtime. <laughs> it's always it's nice, you know, if it's a couple of minutes under, but if it's a full 10 minutes under, hero status. And in terms of the form, it does follow, as the blurb says, uh, this European tour, which is really, really fun to watch, and the studio time for this 13th album. But it also shows the band in their home life. And it also has some very famous talking heads from people who are somehow influenced or, or you know, have a relationship with the band, including musicians like Slash and Lars Ulrich from Metallica. It's quite a star 
star-studded start to the film, actually. It's, it's great to see those up front. And I guess that's contextualizing who they are as a band, because why would you watch a documentary about a band you've never heard of? But that's also the sell, isn't it? That this is, in some ways, the great band of metal that should have made it, but didn't. You're talking about Anvil and who they are, they are very important, but they never really made it. They, 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 they have the unique plus and minus of being the end of something and the beginning of something else, yet neither, sitting in neither, genre-wise, I mean. So they're from the late 70s, early 80s is their sort of heyday. Um, they were coming at the back of this 1970s period of rock becoming a bit more heavier, moving towards metal. They were clearly influenced by a lot of new wave of British heavy metal bands. That's a genre term that includes Motorhead, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden that were very punky. They started speeding up the tempos, bringing in the double kick drum, which is what a lot of people associate with metal, faster, groovier riffs. However, they inspired people like maybe a couple of years younger than them who would then innovate further within a year. So that their big album is Metal on Metal that comes out in 1982. And you have kids who are in their teenage years around that time, like Lars Ulrich from Metallica, Tom Araya from Slayer, who I think is also in the film. And they would take that and run with it. And within two years, there'd be a whole new genre called thrash that they've moved on leagues beyond Anvil and Anvil have been left behind, not really satisfying anything that's popular or innovative because they didn't really change with the times. And it's, that's really sad in a way that they were just at the wrong time to make it big. So those talking heads at the beginning kind of contextualized them like, oh, we know Lenny from Motorhead. And he's saying, oh yeah, yeah, Anvil, I remember them. So I, I guess that brings us on board somewhat. This film is shot leading up to 2008 when the film's released. They're still a band, they're still playing. But what um, is really eye-opening is going from those talking heads to seeing them play for the first time in what looks like a local bowling alley, you know, and they're playing an anniversary show. It's not this big event that you feel like it should be after hearing those talking heads. It's this, you know, it looks like they're... It just looks like a pub gig, you know, and, and that's what they're used to doing. And you very quickly get the sense, you know, these are hardened veterans who are still playing these small shows. That, that gig is really important because we get to meet some of their fans and, and oh, they've, you know, <laughs> they've got names like Mad Dog and... What's he called? Cut Loose? Cut the guy with the sort yeah. of bulging eyes who we find out is a manager of a telemarketing company <laughs> later on. I love those guys. I, I'll say up front, one of the reasons why I love this film is that I think that it gets to the heart of what I love about metal and the metal community and what it says about a certain sort of man. You know, the, the metal community is often criticized or caricatured as being a lot of white guys in denim or leather with long hair way beyond, <laughs> long thinning hair way beyond its sell by date. But that makes it from an almost David Attenborough <laughs> sort of observational standpoint, a really interesting way of looking at contemporary masculinity. And that's all within this film. And you see kind of Mad Dog and, and Cut Loose, they're a bit older than the guys I went to university with, of course, but I could really just see those, the guys I went to university with in the metal societies, metal clubs I went to in Birmingham, and they will turn into those guys. They may have their white collar nine to five jobs, but they'll still be there in the evening, rocking out, chugging beer through their nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, you know headbanging away. I think it's important they have that scene there because it, it paints this really intimate portrait of, of the band and the whole film I think is a very intimate portrait mainly between the relationship between Steve and Rob Lips uh, <laughs> Steve Kudlow the, uh, the singer and, and guitarist and, and Rob Reiner the uh, the drummer but not that Rob Reiner but and I, I think that's that's what's really nice you know you talk about uh, it's exactly what you were saying you know it's a really tight knit community and these are people who really love each other there's ups and downs of course but it's uh, it's great to get it on camera in this film so you've mentioned Rob Reiner already you've invoked the name I think we should head, head this off early on how this is I is it intentionally a riff on Spinal Tap so this is basically you know you've, you've covered Spinal Tap before with Jeremy Wormsey and Elizabeth Sankey but that is a mockumentary larger than life and now this is the stranger than fiction documentary that is more Spinal Tap than Spinal Tap. And there are so many references all the way through, not least the fact that the drummer in Anvil is called Rob Reiner with two Bs. So shares at least the name with the director of Spinal Tap. They visit Stonehenge at one point. They are lost backstage and they're singing Hello, they're making Hello Cleveland references. They, um, there's a really touching sequence where it's very similar to the scene in Spinal Tap where David and, and Nigel are singing the first song they ever wrote together. And you have Lips doing the same with Thumbhang, that, that song, um, as well as, of course, the, the classic bit in, in Spinal Tap that, that, that they do here is where they're rattling off all of the terrible album names of their previous albums that didn't make it, plus the hilarious NAF album covers they had. But then within that, there is this sort of, I don't want to say bromance, God, what an awful term, but the relationship between these two guys that have been friends since their teenagers and have gone through everything together and you see the cracks form. Rob Reiner, the drummer in Anvil, is a bit too cool. He's quite cold and standoffish and awkward, whereas Lips is this bundle of nervous energy. He's the front man who's powering the, the band with his, the, the, his own persona However, he is also a bundle of nerves and vulnerability and neuroses, and he just wants to be loved and accepted. And you see him just making it worse for himself until he just breaks down and just says, I love you, man. And we're seeing basically the fragile masculinity of the 20th century breaking apart before our eyes. And that's a really important thing to capture on, on documentary. We have I not, don't want to start a sociological dive into the representations of the sexes on film, but we don't really have many coming-of-age... Bro, the bromance super bad type comedy is usually about friendships bound up by shared experience or shared senses of humour, uh, etc. Whereas this is really showing a real friendship that's peculiarly masculine. I think that's something that this this film bottles really well. Absolutely. And I think the at the time in their their careers when it's being filmed, it's, you know, they, these are high stress situations going on tour across Europe, you know, mm -hmm. the pressure of filling up these shows. You talk about how Lips, you know, he is a, a you know, a ball of energy and he his emotions are so close to the surface. And I love that when he's playing, the first time we see them at a big gig is a, is a rock festival. And there's so many famous bands around who he knows that like halfway through an interview, he'll stop and will <laughs> run over because he has to say hello to somebody. It's so nice to, that they've kept that stuff in because it just captures his, his persona, his personality so well. He's a fan, right? He's not somebody who is jaded and says, oh, I used to share the stage with Twisted Sister. I'm bigger than these guys. 
when he sees JJ from Twisted Sister walk past. He's actually you know, really excited to go and see Michael Schenker from Scorpions, even though they shared the bill with Scorpions in the footage we see at the beginning of the show, of the, of the program. So yeah, he is still a really genuine bloke. And maybe that's what makes this so approachable. I know people who will watch this that aren't metal fans. I happened to watch it with my metal fan housemates at university when I lived in a rat-infested house in Selly Hill, Birmingham, that we called the Fortress of Metal because that was the thing that united all of us. But And, and we would just lap up whatever metal music or film or whatever we could have. But you could show this to somebody who will, con- will connect to it on a human level. And Lips is, is the attraction there. In the summer of 1984, Anvil toured the world with the biggest bands in rock. These guys are going to turn the music world upside down. All of them sold millions of records around the world. All of them, but one. One thing that's really good, man, is that we found those sleeping bags. This film is directed by Sasha Gervaisi, mm-hmm. who's not someone... I'm, I'm not really familiar with him now so much, but definitely wasn't familiar before this movie. Who, who was Sasha Gervaisi? What's his relationship with Anvil? I, I find Sasha Gervaisi really fascinating. So I'll go into some detail in a second, but his relationship with Anvil was that he was a metal fan growing up in London in the 80s and sent Anvil a letter and saying he was, he was like the biggest Anvil fan in the UK. And he met them at a gig in London and then became their roadie. It's very smart that that is the connection but he doesn't let, let that mask slip until the very last shot of the entire film where you have a photograph from the 80s of a young Sasha Gervaisi with a young band. And that's a nice, sweet moment to tribute to that connection. But Sasha Gervaisi is a fascinating guy. His dad was a really important economist in the 20th century. He was an advisor to the Kennedy administration, came over and was an academic in the UK. So Sasha Gervaisi uh, went to Westminster School in London, like your previous guest, Joe Cornish. I wonder if they know each other. That would be fascinating. But while he was growing up in London, he was into music. He was a drummer. There's an extra on the Blu-ray where I think it's the gig at the end of the film, the the Japan gig, where during the set, they let Sasha take the drum kit and play a song with them. So he was a drummer in a band. Um, what's their name? Let me just uh, check this. The band was called Future Primitive in London that he formed with a guy called Gavin Rossdale, maybe a name familiar to you. And when Sasha Gervaisi left that band, Gavin Rossdale and um, uh, Nigel Pulsford, the guitarist, formed Bush, who became known and vilified as the chief proponents of British post-grunge in the 90s. Gavin Rossdale then would um, marry Gwen Stefani and become an actor. He's in, what's he really good in? He's really good in the Constantine movie, I think. But he, he pops up in the odd film. So yeah, he's really well connected. And then Sasha Gervaisi then goes to UCLA and studies screenwriting. And then I think before Anvil, his chief credit was as screenwriter or co-screenwriter on The Terminal the Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks joint. And then he makes That's this documentary. Nice. It's like, what? <laughs> this is like five careers and lifetimes in one. That's, uh, that's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he's directed the film and, and he's been working on it since 2005. It's released in 2008. So there is a lot of him in the film, but he doesn't put himself in as a character. He just wants it to be about the band. And I guess that's the fandom. Like he wants to paint this portrait of them that nobody else has done. Yeah, exactly. And do you, do you, you, you didn't recognize Sasha Gervais' name from what he did after this. I, I sort of forgot the, the films yes. that he did after this, then looking them up. Uh, so the film he does immediately after this is uh, Hitchcock, isn't it? I, I think he might, might have made a TV movie, but his directorial debut is Hitchcock, which is Helen Mirren and Anthony Hopkins, The Making of Psycho, 
fictionalized into a dramatization. And that's interesting. Like you think that he's now, after this documentary, going in the direction of being Oscar bait, prestige director. But he's not really done anything since then. I, I wonder what he's up to. So you say you watched this with your housemates at uni. Did you mm-hmm. watch this in the cinema at the time or was this a, a DVD discovery? You know, I wish I could remember. I, I can't remember, um, to, to be frank. But this was, we definitely did then buy the DVD not long after. But it, be, it, was, became in, it, was, it was in constant rotation with the likes of Spinal Tap or Metal, A Headbanger's Journey, which was a similar documentary around the same time that we ended up watching with the lads at the fortress (laughs) i think around that time i was into similar music especially when i was in secondary school and and i think at uni i I went into it got a bit more sort of indian and and folky but there was the metallica film some kind of monster around the same sort of time like i I had a a dvd a small dvd collection of like metal documentaries so it was a funny capsule of time it was was a weird weird moment and anvil cuts across a few of those subgenres, right um it comes at a really fascinating time for documentary in between two two points which is so digital cameras came in and suddenly it was much easier to do a fly on the wall documentary an observational documentary much cheaper smaller crew smaller budget but then by the end of the 2000s into the 2010s i'd say netflix and podcasts come in and just completely take the legs out from underneath this sort of mainstream popular skewing accessible documentary whereas now it would be a five-part series on netflix or a or a podcast on maybe the more the slightly more serious or issues side, you'd have Man on Wire, Michael Moore, Inconvenient Truth. But then there was a really interesting thread through documentaries in the 2000s of stranger than fiction docs with larger than life personalities. You have, of course, examples of that in music. You've already covered Searching for Sugar Man with Rihanna Dillon. That comes out a little after this. But the, yeah, the, the foundation text of this documentary style is some kind of monster, the Metallica documentary. We also have Dig! Exclamation mark, another film with an exclamation mark in the title. The Devil and Daniel Johnston. And then splintering off into just weird folk in strange subcultures. King of Kong, the documentary about the top scorers of, King Kong, of Donkey Kong. Confessions of a Superhero, the documentary about the guys who dress up as Superman and various other superheroes on is it sunset in in la and then films like grizzly man the van herzog documentary so there's a really fascinating time to without knowing it you'd be watching so many documentaries whereas now documentaries are either incredibly popular you'd be watching tiger king on netflix not realizing you're watching a documentary or you'd be have to go to festivals like Docfest, and you'd see something really powerful there's this, there was this time where, because of the DVD market and digital video and so on, the, the stuff could be really easily accessible. And Anvil was right in the middle of all that. Hello, I'm Martin. Hello, I'm Sam. And together we host a weekly show about the musician Tom Waits called Song by Song. Uh, we've spent the last five years talking together about his work, along with a slew of fantastic guests, going through one track at a time from his very first album, Closing Time, and we show no sign of stopping anytime soon. We've just wrapped up our 16th season uh, about the early years, volumes one and two, which is Tom Waits' early folk re- recordings, and those are a brilliant place to start if you need to his music. Uh, why not take a dip in at songbysongpodcast.com or put song by song into your favorite podcast device you weren't into metal then or, or were you i was when i was 
probably so definitely in secondary school up to sick form and i think as i went into university although we did we did live our house at university was like a bit like the young ones we did have like a heavy metal <laughs> fan who was dressed like vivian for most of the time i wasn't really a music person when i was younger my parents only really had like a jasper carrot uh, comedy cassette tape in the car <laughs> and the best of queen so i just grew up listening to that jasper carrot cassette tape and the best of queen uh-huh. and then i guess queen maybe led into other types of like rock music and, and metal and I went to Iron Maiden gigs when I was younger and and saw Metallica and, and we did all that stuff, but it was definitely whilst I was at secondary school in sixth form. And when I was at university and and I was on a film course, so I just got really, really deep into into film. Film was my other passion. Mm-hmm. So I sort of left the, the metal uh, stuff behind. It's interesting. So we're a similar age. If you were a teenager in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, the popular music for kids of that age would have been some form of pop pop skewing metal new metal for example or going into the more emo post hardcore type stuff later on or even industrial metal stuff so i ended up listening to nine inch nails marilyn manson a bit of corn i wasn't a fan of limp biscuit or lincoln park but a lot of people a lot of my friends were what was so attractive about metal was the, that sense of a subculture i also love I guess it's the nerd tendency within me. I love comic book movies. I love, at that time, I loved Star Wars and sci-fi. And then metal just felt like a community that was similar. You'd end up uh, in a similar way that Star Wars people argue about what's canon. Metal people argue about what's death metal versus black metal and whether it's actually not black metal, it's symphonic black metal. It's not death metal, it's melodic death metal. And I love hearing people argue about genre terms and the history of metal. So I was really into that. But what I love then is that sense of community and the people and the characters and the personas. And that's what you see within, in a film like Anvil. And something that I love about Anvil it is the fact that it's really, as I said, accessible. And I actually think that metal as a community and metal as a genre of music is much more accepting and accessible than maybe people would thing did you like the music in anvil what, what what did you make of that yeah i did i mean i i i wish the film played more of their songs but it is an 80 minute film 80 minute mm-hmm. long film so it's hard to fit full songs in but the excerpts you hear are really good and it just reminded me of it reminded me a lot of iron maiden because that's my main touch point mm-hmm. uh, for this it of course reminded me of spinal tap because of so many things we've already talked about but it did make me then go and sort of look them up and, and see what they're what they're doing so it's yeah. it's a really good entry point i think yeah i i love music films and music documentaries but the my usual taste test is in the 80 minutes or 90 minutes two hours of watching a film would it have been better spent reading the Wikipedia page and listening to two albums back to back? And often with a more iconic act, like say Elton John for Rocketman or Bohemian Rhapsody for Queen, you should go and listen to a couple of their albums or read the autobiography or the memoirs or the unauthorized one instead. Whereas with Anvil, I've tried listening to a couple of their albums and actually it is a bit samey and repetitive and you can tell why they didn't quite make it. They didn't quite have that long-term popular commercial appeal but that's why this film is great for that is that you get just enough of a dose to be on board but then there's everything else i mean we've not actually said much about the film itself because i mean i just want to talk about metal i could do that for hours (laughs) but it's so funny this film if people liked the bros documentary after the screaming stops that went out on it actually it had a theatrical release didn't it but it then was on bbc a christmas a year or two ago and was really big from that iPlayer. 
session about Bros, who are again really popular for about a year or two and then was forgotten by the mainstream. But they're still going. They had these two twins who have again a clashing a clash of personalities egos and they try to come back together to record there's another bit where they try to break down the wall between them and admit their love for each other and have tantrums but that is hilarious and funny and has so many quotable lines that people now use as memes on twitter and i think that anvil has moments like that as well that the greatest comedy writers couldn't have written there's one that I was thinking about when it's, it's towards the end or the, the, the nadir of their European tour, the, the nightmare European tour. And Rob Reiner um, is off having a sulk. And he says, I tell you what our problem is in, uh, in one word. No, two words, three words. We haven't got a good manager. <laughs> and it's like, that is something right out of Spinal Tap that, you know, if it was in Spinal Tap, you'd think, oh, that's a bit of a cheap bit of improv. It's so many moments like, isn't it? It's the uh, it's seeing them driving their own sort of small van across Europe, getting lost on the way to a gig, them getting to the gig and being refusing to be paid. I think it's a couple of hundred euros that they're, they're not going to be paid and they're very upset by this, of course. But that's also such a tragic moment because Lips is the rock god on stage. Mm. And then he tries to be the big man, an intimidating guy shouting at the manager saying, I've played my, this gig and you should pay me. And you can see he's just a child. And that's just completely captures this thing of, you know, that this, this post-war, post-baby boom generation of men who never really found their manhood. It's right there in this guy. And I also love the comparisons with the soft furnished, dependable white collar lifestyle of their siblings. And his wife, Lips's wife, is just such a lovely woman who just seems to have just walked out of normal life. Um, and whenever they cut to the families and their, their humdrum normality, while Lips is in the corner wearing both a hoodie and a hat with anvil emblazoned on it, <laughs> it's, that, it, it's that juxtaposition that's so funny, but also so tragic and real. It's a dream, but I'm going to make it come true. One of my favorite parts of the film is, is just seeing Lips doing his day job, which is driving hot meals for children uh, mm -hmm. around his town and you know, children in schools and institutions and him not having any ego. He's talking to people about how was your weekend at, at the uh, in the kitchen? And he's just this guy, but we've just seen him be an absolute legend on stage. Uh, and it's such that's such a nice portrait of him. And I'm so glad that that stuff is in the film as well. And we don't really often get this view, do we? Because... I guess we had Searching for Sugar Man where they finally track him down and he's this soulful dude. But this is almost like Inside Lewin Davis 30 years later. I'd love to see what happened to Inside, into, in, what happened to Lewin Davis after he went to become a longshoreman again, gave up on his dreams. Was he still playing? Who knows? We've actually got that here in Anvil. There's a really great narrative structure throughout this film. It you know, starts by placing them on the map, lets us know who they are. We see ups and downs, lots of downs, but it does have this amazing ending and mm -hmm. i think the final gig in japan is it's i felt really moved so i remember reading at the time i couldn't find it in researching for this a piece that that accused sasha gervaisi of switching the timeline around the chronology so we have the european tour with their new manager their new booking agent 
uh, the Italian lady, then that goes goes awry. Then they come back and there's, they're sort of floundering around a bit and then they decide to self-fund their new album with Chris Sangarita's CT, legendary metal producer. They get the money, they do it, then they're sort of floundering around again because they have this album they can't sell. And then a phone call comes to headline a gig in Japan. I think someone said that that happened, the Japan gig happened earlier in the narrative. But anyway, it's an amazing narrative structure and it ends so well because you've been on their side all the way through and they've already set up this expectation that they'll play a large venue and literally five people will turn up. Earlier on, they play in, I want to say Slovakia, somewhere in sort of Central Eastern Europe and it's a 10,000 capacity venue for a festival and it says capacity 10,000, attendance 137 (laughs) or something. (laughs) And you know, oh, is it going to happen again in Tokyo? Are the fans actually there? And they are. And they're able to shine for that one moment. It's a beautiful ending, whatever, whether it's real or not. Do we, do we want actual factual, honest to God truth in a documentary like this? Well, there we have it. Anvil is going to be in our 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. Very excited to get this on the big screen, playing through some loudspeakers. I can give you an 80-minute slot at our festival, but how you present this film is entirely down to you. What would you do with a blank check to make this screening truly rock? So, Castle Donington, legendary outdoor venue for metal. We're going to revive Monsters of Rock. We're going to have this with the screening be the centerpiece but we're going to have it as a tribute to Anvil, a whole weekend where everybody who's paid lip service to Anvil over the years is going to come together and play this this, this mini festival. So you're going to get Slash. If Slash wants to bring along Guns N' Roses, he can if you want, but you you can get at least the thrash metal bands, Slayer, Anthrax, Metallica. That would be fantastic. Unfortunately, Slayer, I think, have have broken up now. A reunion gig, that would be for Anvil. Just for this, you know? Yeah. Now, I know that you also like kind of events within the event, little sidebars and so on. I think it's only appropriate that we'd have a live podcast. As I said, I love hearing people talk about metal and I love hearing people talk on podcasts. And there's a podcast I love that I want to give a shout out to that's called Thrash It Out that's hosted by Anthony Johnston, who's a comic book writer. He actually wrote the comic that Atomic Blonde was based on. He, he is a big fan of, of music, particularly metal. He her co-hosts it with another writer called Brian Latendry. And each episode, they each of them pick a metal album. They have very different tastes in metal. They haven't done Anvil yet. And I'd love them to do an all singing, all dancing, maybe star-studded version of Thrash It Out, maybe with Lars, maybe with Tom Araya, maybe with Slash coming in the chime in what a what a headliner <laughs> <laughs> we'll book castle donnington we'll get some of the biggest metal bands in the world to fly over and we'll have a, you know the concerts the music will be the warm-up act but of course we'll headline with a screening of anvil the story of anvil oh yeah who would be your optimum guest to maybe introduce this film or you know it's your show if you want to host a q a afterwards totally down to you who would you like to talk to on stage so the, the easy answer to this would be the band right I, I almost think that it would be more appropriate and more emotional to get the family over or maybe get everybody from the documentary over. We can get Mad Dog to come and chug beer during the Q&A through his nostril. I almost think that could be quite good because when you have a documentary, I think thinking back to your Searching for Sugar Man episode, it would be like, 
I think I remember at the time when that film came out, they showed the film at the BFI and then who's here in the audience tonight? That would be the obvious thing to do for this. Not to say that it was obvious to get Rodriguez out because the whole thing about searching for Sugar Man is that we didn't know he was still around. Anvil we know is still around. So I think it would be more appropriate for the film to have something about not just that legacy, so that the, the, the longevity of the band's influence would be having the bands around them, but the film itself is a, is a tribute to the fans and the family around them. So I think that's who I'd want to shine the spotlight on. We need to feed some people during this. What's the best metal snack? Ooh, I don't actually know what a good metal snack is. What were you eating when you went to see Iron Maiden and Motorhead? I think it was probably like a go-ahead bar. <laughs> <laughs> or like a tracker cereal bar. <laughs> <laughs> maybe tracker yeah something with nuts in at least come on <laughs> i think it was all like okay we're gonna be standing up for a long time we're gonna be headbanging let's uh my mum probably packed us a little lunch yeah i'm i'm not a boozer but i guess there are lots of metal and metal adjacent hard drinks you have the trooper beer that is the iron maiden branded beer and of course jack daniels i guess if slash is coming along he'll bring his own case i i, I don't especially at gigs I wouldn't be eating and drinking while, while watching. Maybe, maybe you've got to stay hydrated. Of course, it's a festival atmosphere. So have the plastic pint glass of water. But, um, and we will need to have, you know, a lot of the attendees may be getting on a bit. So we will have to have hearing protection, you know, as, as smaller venues do now. But I don't know, food, I'm not, I'm not sure what I think of that. Maybe the metal thing is just no food. Maybe that's true metal. Eat beforehand or afterwards. Metal, you've got to be fully focused. Anvil did uh, briefly release a range of coffee, which is sadly out of production now. Uh-huh. But yeah, just after this film, in the sort of in the 2010s uh, up to 2015, they had their own range of coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we could revive that coffee range to a little pick-me-up. We could fly in Choice Children's Catering. They could cater the entire venue. That would be, what, a, what an amazing gig. Okay, <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> and it starts with Lips just in his hoodie delivering it <laughs> to everybody. Perfect. Do you think this film could or should be longer than 90 minutes? No, I wouldn't want this to be any longer. I think this is just perfect as it is. As I said, once you listen to too much of their music, it gets a bit much. There are deleted scenes on the um, the Blu-ray that I did watch afterwards, but I think this is just so perfectly structured that I don't really need any more. Well, there we have it. Anvil, the story of Anvil, is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. The most extravagant screening I think we're going to be doing uh, yet, but totally deserving for this film. Totally, totally works. I think that's excellent curation. Thank you very much for bringing this film into the festival. Thank you so much for having me on, Sam. Where can people see, read, hear more of your work on the internet? Wow. Okay. So I guess um, I'm on Twitter at Michael J. Leader. Um, that's sort of, I guess, everything will, will be spinning out from that. If you want to check in on Inside Cinema, that's on iPlayer. We didn't mention Inside Games. We did do a mini series of six short video essays on video games. If you're more of a gamer than a film fan, that's all on iPlayer. And Ghibliotech is back in action with the Satoshi Kon miniseries. And you can find that if you search Ghibliotech, which is G-H-I-B-L-I-T-H-E-Q-U-E. I realized that we we went with the pun on Bibliotech without realizing that many, may, maybe people would drop the H and well, who knows. So the spelling of it is that. Find Ghibliotech wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the show on your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As an independent podcast, it really helps. We're also available on 90minfilmfirst.com. That's 90minfilmfirst.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfirst. The show was produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. 
The show is edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We are a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. Head over there for some more amazing podcasts. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.